Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you moms. Um, thanks for all that you do. We're grateful for you. Uh, Tolstoy in War and Peace wrote that kings are the slaves of history. And sometimes I feel like maybe moms are like the slaves of the family. When I was little, I felt like my mom was really in charge because she got to make decisions and stuff. But in reality, she was serving our family. Um, When I was a kid, mom was the one who folded the laundry, made dinner, cleaned the house, stayed up late and waited until I got home if I was late or if I had snuck out. And in our house today, Grace is the one who makes most of the dinners, reorganizes the kids' room, makes and uh, folds and um, uh, uh, fixes the kids' uh, clothes. And right now, uh, being a mom is especially difficult. Mom is also a school teacher, camp director, keeper of sanity, and all the other roles that moms are having to play right now. So I just want to say thank you to my mom and to Grace, mother of my kids, and to all you moms out there. Thanks for all that you do. Um, I'm grateful for you, and I pray that the Lord is blessing you with his love and grace today. May you know his presence, experience his pleasure in you, and enjoy his love today. Again, back to that Tolstoy quote. In War and Peace, Tolstoy writes that kings are the slaves of history. Kings think that they have all this power. And in War and Peace, Tolstoy is especially picking on Napoleon, who carries himself as the most powerful person in in the world. But really, they're trapped. Kings are trapped by their duties, alliances, by their enemies, by their economic situations, by diseases and disasters that they face, and on and on. In War and Peace, Napoleon loses the war uh, essentially because of the weather. That oversimplifies a little bit, but um, it's the weather that brings him down. Kings are never really free. They're slaves to everything and everyone else. For Tolstoy, the most free person is a person with a family, land, and a simple life. We've been looking at 1 Kings, and in 1 Kings we've been following the kings of the divided kingdoms. We've got Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And in chapters 12 and 13, Rehoboam tried to show strength as king, but he watches this kingdom split apart. And then Jeroboam in the north operates out of fear and neglects God's warnings. And so today we're in chapter 14, and these two kings have both trapped themselves in their sin, and we will see that God views their reigns, both of them, as failures. Kings can drag their nations into exile, uh, lead to servitude to other kings and false worship. Instead of freeing the people as God uh, allowed them to do and gave them opportunity to do, freeing the people to follow God, the kings are leading them back into slavery. And it's true that this slavery isn't uh, building pyramids for the pharaohs, but they are trapped by their idolatry, their sin, and they're living under the control of foreign powers. The people, the nations of Israel and Judah, are not free. Which for me begs the question, if the kings can't make life any better, then what purpose do they have? Who can make life better? If the nation just ends up worse than they are, what good are kings? And I think that's right at the heart of the book of Kings. And that's what our passage gets at today. The kings are enslaved to their circumstances and desires, and their choices are dragging the people into slavery. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into this text together. Lord, you made us for yourself, 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Thank you for the ways that you draw us and welcome us in your love. Thank you that despite our sin and idolatry, you don't abandon us, but you come to free us from the powers that enslave us by your life and death, Jesus. Father, thank you for sending the Son, and we ask that you would shape us today by the power of your Spirit through the reality that we see here in Scriptures. Help us to see ourselves more clearly, to encounter you as the God who frees and redeems us, and help us to submit ourselves to our good and righteous King who gives us true life and freedom. We praise you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Little bit of background on uh, the kings and how, they've, uh, how they're operating as kings um, in chapter 14. Remember, the people in 1 Samuel asked for a king in order to be like the other nations, to build success and security. So there was Saul, then David, then Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's reign, Israel is a prosperous, secure, and safe nation. Solomon dies in 1 Kings chapter 11, and then from chapter 12 on, the kingdom splits apart and things are just completely fall apart. So here we are in chapter 14, and we have two kings, Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south, and these kings were raised uh, under Solomon's leadership. So these, this is the generation of kings that was raised in prosperity. But both of these kings are failures. The kings were supposed to lead the people into security and freedom, Freedom from foreign control, freedom from idols, and freedom to follow God's law, and freedom to worship God. But the kings live in fear. They try and exert their own power. They don't follow God, and they don't lead the people well. So we're like a a couple of generations in, and this great experiment with the monarchy has already failed because the kings don't listen to God. When we follow anything but God, slavery is the end result. We will become enslaved. There is no hope in ourselves, in a strong leader, in a political or national structure. Our hope is not in men or in the ideas of men. So let's look at Jeroboam. And this is uh, verses 1 to 20. The setup here is that God has promised that Jeroboam would be king. But then in chapters 12 and 13, we see that he's not following God. As Dad taught us a couple weeks ago in chapter 12... Uh, Jeroboam tries to manipulate and control God. And as Rod taught us last week in chapter 13, God's given lots of chances for Jeroboam to turn back. But Jeroboam doesn't listen. The check engine light is flashing at him, but he's going to keep going the way that he's going. So the story in our text today is that Jeroboam's son, this is probably his oldest son, and the text tells us it's his best son, is sick and dying. Jeroboam sends his wife to go see Ahijah, the old blind prophet who's living in in Shiloh. And Ahijah was the prophet who told Jeroboam in chapter 11 that he would be king. Jeroboam sends his wife disguised and with gifts. Jeroboam wants to fool God. So what is Jeroboam thinking here? Well, first, he cares about his son, and he knows that Yahweh is really the best chance for his son to get better. But he's not willing to trust Yahweh on Yahweh's own terms. That feels like something I can relate to. I want what God gives me, but I'm, always, I'm not always sure that I want to commit to him. 
I also want to keep my options open. I want my finances to be good. I want my connections to work well. I want my talents to be used. I want to trust in those things. But what that will lead us to eventually is trying to fool God, as Jeroboam does here. Hey, I can keep my options open. What if I pretend, though, that I'm committed to God? Like Jeroboam building altars in the north. And then while I'm pretending to be committed to God, while also worshiping other things, that's eventually going to shift so that I'm committed to the other things while trying to keep an open connection with God. The funny thing about that is God really wants us. He's watching for us to come running back to him. God gave Jeroboam every opportunity to turn around and come back to him. But our fears can lead us to pervert our worship of of the Lord, just like Jeroboam did. What if I lose my power or control? What if the church were to close down? What if my status or wealth disappears? What if the market crashes or my job doesn't come back? Those are serious questions. But do those questions turn into fears that we then feed and try and control and manipulate? Yeah, God, I see that you asked me to trust you. But if I can just get a little bit of control here and make myself indispensable there, then maybe I'll be secure then. Pretty soon, we find that we're trying to fool God into thinking that we're wholly submitted to him while really we have a side thing happening over here. Grace and I watched a friend of ours go down that route. She was one of our best friends when I was at grad school. She followed Jesus. She loved her husband. She was a great friend to us. And then she started to have problems in her marriage. And then she got into one of those multi-level marketing things to make some extra income. And then that turned into travel and parties. And then that turned into one affair and then several affairs. And then she left her husband and now she's into new age crystals and marijuana. Apparently a little Jesus on the side. But Jesus was the center of her life. And now she maybe sprinkles a little Jesus on the top of her mess to try and sanctify it. God isn't fooled. God can see what's happening. He knows our hearts. So God tells Ahijah that Jeroboam's wife is coming. I just want to read uh, verse 5 for us. So Jeroboam's trying to fool God. Here's God's message to Ahijah. Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he's ill. You're to give such and such an answer. When she arrives, by the way, she's going to pretend to be someone else. God can see what's happening. God's not fooled. And the message that God gives Ahijah to give to Jeroboam's wife is very difficult message. He says, Ahijah's prophecy is that the boy will die and he will be the only one from the house of Jeroboam who will be buried and mourned. Jeroboam's house will be completely destroyed and the whole nation of Israel will be uprooted and scattered. The loss of the son is a tragedy both for Jeroboam and his family, but then also for the whole nation. This was the one son who might have made a good king, the text tells us. By the way, kind of a random note, but the name of Jeroboam's son here is Abijah, which means Yahweh is my father. And that name occurs here in verse 1, and then the same name or a very similar name, Abijah or Abijam in some of the texts, occurs in verse 31. That's the last verse of the chapter. So this name occurs in both the first and last verses of this chapter. That's a way that the the writer of Kings is telling us that all of this information kind of belongs together. 
It ties everything together. It's the same name. And the name is supposed to imply for us, is the father of this person living the way the Lord wants him to? And the answer in both of these cases is no. But the whole thing ties this thing together. You know how sometimes when you're reading, if you read several chapters of the Bible, sometimes you look back and go, why is the chapter break where it is? It doesn't make any sense. Well, this is not one of those places. The chapter break is in exactly the right place. This information all belongs together. Okay, back, back to the text. The blind prophet Ahijah promises that Jeroboam and, Jeroboam and his family will be destroyed. And he also promises exile. The language he uses here is uprooting and scattering. Remember, God had taken this slave people out of Egypt and brought them and planted them in the promised land. That's what the text says in several places. God planted them here. Now he's uprooting and scattering them. And the scattering uh, uh, refers to David and Solomon had brought this whole nation together. It was one nation worshiping God all together. And now they're going to be scattered, uprooted and scattered. More than that, Jeroboam's family will be completely destroyed. And the language that Ahijah uses here is very, very explicit. My translation says um, that Jeroboam, every male from Jeroboam's house will be cut off. That's the, the G-rated version of an R-rated text. The, the Hebrew language is more like cut, cut off or castrate the thing that urinates against the wall. Or the King James has it that pisseth against the wall. That's the right language. It's a castration image. Plus, uh, Ahijah goes on, he's, God is going to burn up the house of Jeroboam like one burns dung. Dung, of course, is very gentle language. Ahijah is like this old, blind, swearing prophet, this crusty, offensive old guy. I think he'd be fun to hang out with. I think I would like him. So uh, this crusty language and this hard message, Jeroboam's wife comes back, she steps on the threshold of the house, and at that instant, the boy dies. The nation mourns. Ahijah's prophecy comes, comes true. God has given a strong condemnation of Jeroboam's reign. Verse 9, he says, You, Jeroboam, have done more evil than all who came before you. There's a lot going on in this text that I want to talk us through uh, we won't get to all of it, but I want to talk us through uh, something important that's happening here. Uh, and what's happening here reminds me of something like Back to the Future. It's like we're in the DeLorean going back in time, going through a time vortex, and what we see uh, are different markers as we're going backwards. So, so um, we see like, oh, this is a reference to David's time, and this is a reference to, to 1 Samuel, and this is a reference to the judges. Here's a reference to Moses, and here we're landing now. Where are we? We have to get our bearings at this point. So let me talk us through some of these references. First, Jeroboam in earlier texts could have been like Moses. But he turns out more like Aaron when he builds golden calves. So here are some clues out of this chapter. First, we see Ahijah, this blind prophet living in Shiloh. This is how the book of 1 Samuel begins, with an old blind priest, Eli, waiting for the word of the Lord. So Ahijah should maybe remind us of Eli in the beginning of 1 Samuel. Shiloh is the place where in Judges, God's presence dwelt. The tabernacle was there. 
when, when Jeroboam wants to hear from the Lord, he doesn't go to the modern place of God's presence, the temple, the place where God has said, hey, I will meet with you if you come and worship me at the temple. He goes back to a previous time. He goes back to the time when the judges, the, the place where God met his people in the time of the judges. So he's going backwards in time. He goes back to Shiloh. And then, if you catch the reference, like Pharaoh, Jeroboam loses his son because of the hardness of his heart. More than that, he loses his son when his wife steps on the threshold. The threshold is where the door is. The door, of course, if you remember in the Passover story in Exodus, the doorposts are where you would have painted the blood of the sheep. And when... um, when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorway, he would have passed by the house. So in Exodus, the threshold is the place of salvation. Here, for Jeroboam, the threshold is the place of death. So the writer of Kings is telling us Jeroboam could have been like Moses, and instead he's turned out like Pharaoh. He suffered the same consequences, and he's leading people to the same reality into slavery he could have been a deliverer but his choices have led the people back into the slavery of sin and idolatry we have choices when we choose to follow god god can use us to bring blessing life and freedom to others but when we attach ourselves to idols we enslave ourselves and like jeroboam we can actually enslave others as well A couple of final lessons for us from this part of the text. God called Jeroboam, but Jeroboam did not follow God. Just because God has promised, called, and established a leader does not mean that everything that that leader does is approved by God. Doesn't even mean that they're a good leader. Our temptation is to think, oh, God chose me or God chose that leader. Therefore, what I do or what that leader does is right. God does not approve of what Jeroboam has done. God's choice does not equal God's approval. One final lesson from Jeroboam's story here. You and I are no less sinful than Jeroboam or the people who followed him. Our fears and need for control can lead us into the same kinds of trouble. Our identity needs to be found in God. Our identity cannot be found in kings, in systems of government, or in anything else. Only in God. Okay, so things have not gone well in the north. What about the south with Rehoboam? The setup for Rehoboam here. Rehoboam continues the line of of David. He is David's grandson and Solomon's son. He rules in Jerusalem as he was supposed to do. Great. But the text starts giving us clues that things are not going well. One clue mentioned twice here in verses 21 to 31 is Rehoboam's mother. Her name was Naamah and she was an Ammonite. And both times it says his mother's name was Naamah and she was an Ammonite. Now, the problem here is not her name or that she was an Ammonite, at least for her. She's not in sin because she's a foreign woman. That's not the problem here. But she is evidence of Solomon's sin. 
Solomon was not to marry foreign wives or follow after foreign gods, but he did. And and she's evidence that Rehoboam is continuing in Solomon's ways. Rehoboam was not to follow after foreign gods, but he does. By the way, uh, just a note here, don't follow a leader because their dad or their grandpa were great. Follow a leader because the leader you're following follows after God. If you trust my dad and, and think he's great, great. I think he's great too. That's not a reason to trust in me. Hopefully there are other reasons uh, to trust me, but that's not one of them. Okay, so the story here with Rehoboam. The text points out two things in particular. First, what is Judah's religious life like under Rehoboam as king? And second, what are Rehoboam's interactions with Egypt like? It's a strange story. But first, verses 22 to 24. The writer of Kings tells us that in Rehoboam's time, Judah followed after all the evil religious practices of the nations around them. Judah did evil. They had high places, sacred stones, Asherah poles, and it says Asherah poles under every spreading tree and on every high hill. And they had male shrine prostitutes. Look at how quickly we can get there. One generation ago, Solomon finished building the temple. And now, under Rehoboam, we have male shrine prostitutes. It reminds, reminds me of what, uh, of the text, uh, Romans 1, what happens in Romans 1, where the people go from worship of God, they abandon worship of God, and they get to male prostitution by the end of the chapter. All of us can go to crazy places, places we never thought we would go when we refuse to worship God as God. Again, my friend, I'm sure a few years ago she would have said we were crazy if we would have said that today she'd be divorced into new age mysticism with no concern for Jesus. That would have sounded totally insane to her. And yet, here we are. And the nation. God set up Judah and Israel to be a light to the nations. But now Judah is in darkness like the nations around them. Are there ways that we put out our lights so that we can be like the other nations. Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth, the city on a hill, the light of the world. If the salt loses its saltiness, what purpose do we have? If the light goes out, what good are we? There are a thousand little temptations for us to put out our lights, but it all comes down to this one thing. Do we trust Jesus and the way that he runs his kingdom? Or do we ultimately trust in things like power, wealth, violence, comfort, security, our own rights and freedoms? We'll talk more about Jesus' kingdom in a minute, but it's so easy for us to fall into the habits and patterns of the nations around us and to forget that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so our lives should not look like they are of this world either. Okay, so Judah did evil. And then in verses 25 to 28, the writer of Kings tells us this strange story about Shishak, the king of Egypt, and his relationship with Rehoboam. Shishak invades Judah, goes to the temple, and steals stuff out of the temple, including golden shields. And then the writer tells us that Rehoboam makes bronze shields to replace the gold ones, and then hides them in a guardroom except when they're needed, and then brings them out then. It's a strange story. 
couple things about it, though. Rehoboam, in making bronze shields, is trying to hide the fact that he's really under Egypt's thumb. The reality here is that Egypt dominates Judah in this period of time. But Rehoboam wants everyone to think that he's doing okay, that he's keeping things under control. But he's become a joke. He's kind of a parody of a king. And again, he lost the shields to Egypt. Egypt. In the Hebrew scriptures, Egypt is always Israel's nemesis. They're kind of like the big bully on the block. They come by, they steal your lunch money. Uh, They beat up poor little Israel. David and Solomon had kept them at arm's length. But now that Solomon's gone and Rehoboam's really a weak leader, Egypt can come and pick on Judah again. So for Rehoboam to make bronze shields and pretend that things are all okay, he's just faking it for his own image. Nothing to see here. I've been a great king. Don't worry about it. He's trying to close the people's eyes to the obvious reality that's right in front of them. They're no longer a great kingdom. Judah is essentially enslaved to Egypt again. Just like when God sent Moses to save them. So like Rehoboam in the north, sorry, like Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south, by his choices, has not led the people into freedom and life, but back into slavery to Egypt and become just like the nations around them. The people wanted kings to make them like the other nations. Well, they got their wish. Both Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south lead in ways that make Israel and Judah just like the other nations. They worship like the other nations. They worship the gods of the other nations. They refuse to listen to God. And refusal to worship God always leads us into slavery. Both of these kings lead the people back into the slavery that God had rescued the people out of in the Exodus. We're just a couple generations into this experiment with the kings. We can already see that it's a failure. The kings are not going to lead the people into freedom, truth, righteousness, or redeemed relationship with God. The kings are just like everybody else, except they have more power to do more damage. They're not liberators that the people had hoped for. Instead, they're the ones leading the people into slavery. In other words, there is no hope in not having a king. We found that in the book of Judges. But there's also no hope in having a king like the nations. That leaves us with not much room for hope. Thank God he's a God who redeems and renews and delivers us. He sends a king, but one not like the kings of the nations. Jesus comes as the one true king. He's God's promised king in the kingly line, but submitted to God. The people asked for a king as a way of rejecting God. But God took a failed monarchy and redeemed it to fulfill his purposes. Jesus is the one true king. He's a human king, but not just a human. He's from Abraham's seed, from the line of Judah, of the house of David. That is, God fully embraces all of his promises that he's made in the Hebrew scriptures. God never gave up on his plan, despite the apparent total failure of the whole system. And I want to emphasize how surprising all of this is and how faithful God is. 
Israel rejected God as king, asked for a king like the nations, followed those failed kings, served other gods until they followed those gods right into exile in the, in the other nations. The nation rejected God and got what they asked for. And in spite of that, God kept the promise he made to keep a king from the line of David. The line of David, which produced bad kings, terrible kings, and once every hundred years or so, a decent king. And that one king, the king that God promised, the promised King Jesus, shows up to lead his people and to save them. And what do they do? They reject him again. In fact, they reject him so far that they have him crucified on a Roman cross. God redeems that people and that monarchy. Jesus is the one true king. But Jesus is not a king like the kings of the nations. He chooses to be a servant for our sakes. The kings of the nations are all playing political power games. Jesus establishes a whole different kind of kingdom. It's not about power, but about sacrifice. It's not about wealth and control, but love and grace. It's not about grasping for himself, but about emptying himself for our sakes. Jesus rejects the temptation to take care of his own needs and desires and instead submits to God on God's own terms. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He cares about God's version of success, not the world's version of success. So at the great moment leading to his coronation, in John chapter 13, when he's getting ready to be uh, 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 turned over, betrayed uh, to, the, to the people, uh, to the leadership, the Jewish leadership, John in chapter 13 tells us he knew, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So whatever Jesus does next, we know that this is a defining moment for his kingdom. So what does he do? Knowing that coronation is coming and knowing that he has all the power, what does he do? He takes a towel and he takes a basin of water and he washes his disciples' feet. Jesus' servanthood characterizes his whole kingship and his whole kingdom. And what does his coronation ceremony look like? It looks like a crucifixion and a burial. This king is not like the kings of the nations. When he shows up in power, it looks like servanthood and weakness. But because of who Jesus is, God uses Jesus to free all of us. Because Jesus submits to God and leads in a servant way, God uses Jesus to save the world. Jesus doesn't lead the people into slavery and idolatry, but saves us from sin and death. At the cross, Jesus confronts the evil empire of sin and death. He confronts them and defeats them. And in him, we are free to follow after God and live lives of righteousness, submitted to God and serving one another in the kingdom of God. When we follow Jesus, we get the freedom of participating in his righteousness. So Jesus doesn't lead us back into slavery in Egypt the way the kings uh, here in chapter 14 do. He leads us out of exile and into freedom. In Jesus, God has freed us for abundant life, which is life knowing God. Freedom looks like us giving our lives away for the sake of others, 
Learning freedom from fear, freedom from the need to have security, freedom from political power games, growing freedom from sin, freedom from the powers and principalities of the world, freedom from trying to manage our behavior or the behavior of others. We are free to live in Jesus' kingdom of life, grace, and love. Praise God for leading us out of slavery and into his freedom. Thank God that Jesus is our king. The kings of Israel and Judah did not solve the problems the people needed solving. They, in fact, helped the nation get back into those same problems. And the other problems that other nations experienced. They did not bring security, life, peace, justice, or righteousness. Ultimately, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, and the kings after them led Israel into idolatry, injustice, and eventually into exile. The kings of Israel and Judah really were the slaves of history that led their people into slavery. But God did not give up on his promises. And he sent Jesus to truly and fully release us from slavery. There are no solutions to our human problems without God. So God the Son came to us and participated in our life and then saved us by his death. He came as a servant to lead us to redemption. He lived a life of poverty, but he reigns as king. He died so that we might have life. He sacrificed himself to set us free. Let's pray. God, we praise you. Jesus, we praise you. You are our king. We thank you that you are a king, but not a king like the nations. It's not in power, but in weakness that you make yourself known. It's not in wealth and connections or in trying to manipulate or living in fear that you come, but you come freely and with grace and life and love. We thank you and we we are grateful to get to participate in your kingdom Continue your work of shaping your people. Shape us so that we become more like you, Jesus. That we live lives of grace and life and servanthood and love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you today. Thank you for your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.